Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 209. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. There's one 50-year-old abuse in the Mass that needs to be completely done away with. I'm amazed how many devout Catholics defend this abuse, even among six-pack warriors. This week, we're going to address this abuse with the help of church militants Simon Rafe. Some people have asked me if their nonprofit websites have to be ADA-compliant. If it generates revenue in any way, the answer is yes. I certainly can't afford to be fined by Uncle Sam or sued by slip-and-fall lawyers. It would crush this apostolate, so I've made the Cantankerous Catholic website fully ADA compliant. ADA website consultants charge $4,000 for minimum compliance, which keeps the government from fining you. 
They charge eleven dollars to $15,000 for full compliance, which is the only way to avoid lawsuits. I've learned how to make websites compliant. I'll make Six Pack Warriors websites fully compliant for only $1,000 or $100 a month, which will save you $10,000 to $14,000 now and protect you from crippling lawsuits that you can't possibly win later. Not sure if your site is fully compliant? Click on the link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com to reach out to me. Include your site's URL, and I'll check it out and send you a full report with what I find. Protect yourself from financial ruin and support this apostolate at the same time. We've had several questions for Bishop Strickland about the practice of ad orientum or the priest facing the high altar during Mass. For those of you who don't know, it's an abuse of the liturgy for the priest to face the people. That's what we're going to look at this week. Simon Rafe has a show on Church Militant called Case Files. One particular episode is called The Case of Turning Your Back on God. In Simon's typical and creative way, he acts as a private investigator to investigate this case. I've removed all of the music and intro material to shorten this case file, leaving only Simon's voice. After Simon's finished, I'll add a little additional comment. Blueprints. Architecture. If you want to know about a civilization, take a look at its buildings. And to understand the church and her liturgy, take a look at her churches. It's the only way to get to the bottom of this case, the case of turning your back on God. You know what I'm talking about. Priests saying mass with their back to God rather than facing him. Oh, maybe you haven't heard it put quite that way before. Well, that's what it is. The mass is the most sacred rite of the church, the holy sacrifice of Christ on Calvary for our sins. It's offered by the priest to God on behalf of the people. It's a sacred rite offered in a sacred space with a particularly sacred space called the sanctuary reserved for the priest and other ministers. Now, that's important to understand. In fact, it's the first thing we need to remember. So keep that in mind while we talk about architecture and orientation. And yes, that word was chosen deliberately. See, Orient can mean two things. It can mean the east, that's the direction of the rising sun, towards Boston, if you're standing in Seattle. Or it can mean to line yourself up, to get yourself facing the right direction. Why is that? Why that connection between the east and aligning yourself correctly? (laughs) Because there was once a time when the church actually counted for something in civil society, and the thing that you lined yourself up with was the altar at mass. Historically, churches have been built so they are oriented, there's that word again, with the altar at the eastern end of the building, so the people face the east when they face the altar during Mass. Why is that? What's the big deal about the east? Well, it's pretty simple. According to Catholic tradition, Christ departed towards the east and will come back to us from the east. And we're admonished by the scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, Watch ye therefore, because ye know not what hour your Lord will come. Christ left going that way, he's coming back that way, and we're told to watch out for him. Pretty simple, right? But what happens if a particular church isn't built facing east? I mean, there might be lots of reasons why this is the case. Historically, the architecture of ancient churches was influenced by particular devotions. A classic example is St. Peter's Basilica itself. It doesn't face east. It's orientation, and yes, even if it doesn't face east, it's still oriented, and doubly so if it's a church, but we'll get to that later. 
Its orientation is determined by the position of the Confessio, the underground chapel where St. Peter's tomb is located, and is named after his famous confession of faith. The basilica is built so the celebrant is standing above the tomb of St. Peter, literally standing on the rock on which the church is built. How cool is that? There are other more practical reasons for non-Eastern orientation too. In the modern world, where real estate is at a premium, the shape of the lot the church is built on might determine which way the church has to face. Hey, we live in an imperfect world. So, the church doesn't face east, or maybe the church is built in the round. It's got a central altar. Which direction do we orient ourselves towards then? Well, it's a trick question. You face east, because all churches face east, even if they don't face east. Okay, that sounds crazy, but it's not. The church might be aligned with a particular geographic or magnetic direction other than east, but it's always oriented to liturgical east. For a particular church, the direction the altar faces is liturgical east, and that's the important direction we should align, we should orient ourselves to. Pope Benedict XVI addresses this when he writes, Where a direct common turning towards the east is not possible, the cross can serve as the interior east of faith. It should be in the middle of the altar and be the common point of focus for both priest and praying community. Notice that the focus for both the priest and the community is east, be that geographic east or liturgical east, doesn't matter. Priest and people are facing the same direction, they are towards the east. In Latin, the language of the church, that is ad orientum. Now the alternative isn't towards the west, but rather towards the people, or versus populum. The mass should be said with the priest and people facing the same direction. Yes, that direction is the east, and the east is important. Remember, that's the direction Christ the Son rises, the direction the dawn from on high will break on us. But perhaps more importantly is that the priest and the people aren't facing each other. Now, to most people, this seems like a no-brainer. I don't go to mass to look at the back of the priest's head, they say. No, you didn't. But neither did you go to look at his face. Remember where we started and what we've talked about before. The Mass isn't primarily a communal meal. It's the awesome sacrifice of God offered by God to God on behalf of his people for the forgiveness of their sins. It's not a cozy, sit-down, feel-good meal where we get to chit-chat. Max Thurian, in an article published in L'Osservatore Romano, the daily newspaper of the Vatican, writes, The whole celebration is often conducted as if it were a conversation and dialogue in which there is no longer room for adoration. He finished up by saying, The fact celebrants and faithful constantly face each other closes the liturgy in on itself. Alright, some guy in some newspaper. Am I going to start quoting Dear Abby next? <laughs> How about Pope Benedict? What perhaps one of the greatest liturgists of the last century. In his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, he says the same thing and warns against this conversationalizing of the liturgy. Now the priest, the presider, as they prefer to call him, becomes the real point of reference for the whole liturgy. Everything depends on him. We have to see him, to respond to him, to be involved in what he is doing. His creativity sustains the whole thing. Less and less is God in the picture. More and more important is what is done by the human beings who meet here and do not like to subject themselves to a predetermined pattern. When you think about it from a Catholic perspective, a God-oriented perspective and not a man-centered Protestant perspective, it makes all kinds of sense. Really, this is the no-brainer. The priest is offering a sacrifice, a gift, to God on our behalf. Would you give a gift with your back to the recipient? If you ask someone to give something, flowers maybe, 
to somebody you had offended to say sorry on your behalf. Would you be happy if that person faced you and chatted with you all the time and didn't face the recipient? The priest doesn't have his back to us any more than Moses had his back to the Israelites when he was leading them to the promised land. And that is what the priest is doing. He is leading us. Leading us in prayer at Mass, yes, but also leading us to a place far, far better than the land of milk and honey God promised the Israelites. He is leading us into a deeper communion with God in this life and to an unimaginably deep communion, an infinitely deep communion with God in the next. We are a pilgrim people on a journey. We should follow the priest as he leads us, not stop to have some man-centered conversation. There are, of course, lots of objections. Some people will argue celebration versus populum towards the people is an ancient practice, and yes, it is, in that it was done in ancient times, but it was never common, it was never the norm. Certainly, celebration ad orientum, with the priest and the people facing the same direction, is also an ancient practice, and all the indications are that it was the normal way of offering Mass. Other people say the first Mass was the Last Supper, which is true. And then they say Christ faced the apostles, which is less true. Once again, Pope Benedict, in the spirit of the liturgy, makes this clear. They were all sitting or reclining on the convex side of a C-shaped table, having approximately the shape of a horseshoe. And, and this is the key thing, they were facing the temple. They were orienting themselves towards something together, led by Christ, not having an enclosed conversation. Another objection, or perhaps it's better understood as a defense versus populum, or an argument for why it's actually a good practice. Another objection is saying that when priests and people look at each other, they are looking at the image of God in man, since we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, just on the face of it, this sounds like grasping at straws. I mean, if looking at a human being allowed us to see God in that way, in a liturgical way of worship and adoration, we wouldn't need mass. We wouldn't need anything except to chat with fellow human beings. Heck, maybe we could just look at paintings or photographs or even stare into a mirror. That whole idea, the notion that because man is made in the image of God, God is somehow substantially present in the image of man, is a classic example of the de-supernaturalization, the de-sacramentalization of the faith. It denies the essential nature of God, which is sacred, that is, set apart, different, distinct from us. As always, Benedict has a quicker and more direct way of saying it in the spirit of the liturgy. For we do not see the image of God in man in such a simplistic way. The source of all these objections and arguments is ultimately Satan. He is the author of lies, the father of deception, and he hates. He hates pretty much everything, of course, but he hates the mass perhaps most of all. Because the mass is the means by which humanity accesses that once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that crushed his head and broke his power. Christ died to save us, but only the mass is the way that sacrifice is applied to us. Satan knows this. He would like it best of all if we never went to Mass. And oh yes, he's persuaded lots of people to do just that. But if he can't stop us going to Mass, he wants us to get as little out of it as possible. He wants us to misunderstand it, see it as what it isn't. He wants us to see Mass not as the sacrifice it truly is, but rather a community meal, a man-centered meeting rather than God-centered worship. Now, that isn't to say that everyone who voices these objections is consciously working for Satan, or even willingly working against the church. An awful lot of them are simply useful idiots, repeating some pretty pablum they've been told because it feels good, because it sounds nice. 
And yes, it does sound nice, doesn't it? The awesome sacrifice of Christ offered by the priest with reverence and glory is huge, frightening. It makes us realize how small we are, how far short we fall of holiness. It reminds us that we are sinners and that we need redemption and forgiveness and that we can't do this alone. That is, of course, totally the point. But a man-centered liturgy is comfortable, cozy. We can have a conversation with the priest. We feel affirmed, encouraged, not challenged to change. All of this, of course, is one reason why the Tridentine form of the Mass, the extraordinary form, the Latin Mass, as it's commonly known, is often more conducive to piety and holiness than the Novus Ordo, the ordinary form. The Trinity Mass is always said ad orientum. The Novus Ordo is most often said versus populum. Here's the bombshell you can drop on people. It shouldn't be. What? Here's the deal. The Mass is the Mass, okay? It's the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, represented to us by the priest. The Novus Ordo doesn't change that. If it's right to offer Mass with the priest and people facing east, and wrong to offer Mass with the priest and people facing each other, then it's always right to offer Mass facing east, and wrong to do it facing the people. That's logic. What people are going to do, and what they do do, is whip out that old warhorse Vatican II and say, Vatican II changed all that. No, it didn't. That's not so much a war horse as a Trojan horse. And it's not so much Vatican II as the spirit of Vatican II, which is a fancy way of saying stuff Vatican II didn't say, but we really wish it did. And if we just repeat it often enough, people will believe it, not challenge us. No dice, useful idiot. I've read the documents back to front, nowhere, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the liturgy, and you can read it as many times as you like. Does it speak about celebrating Mass facing the people? It's just not there. Alright, what about the Roman Missal? That's the book which tells the priest how to say Mass. Say the black, do the red. That's the rule. The priest reads the words in black and does the instructions printed in red. Surely that talks about celebrating the Novus Ordo facing the people, right? Nope, it doesn't. Most editions presume a celebration correctly oriented, facing liturgical east. Oh, sure, they give instructions to turn to face the people during particular parts of the liturgy. For example, when the priest says, Dominus Vobiscum, there he is saying, the Lord be with you, to the people, so it makes sense to face them. But the fact the missile says to turn towards the people shows the priest wasn't, in fact, facing towards them before he started turning. That's just logic. You don't tell somebody to turn to face someone if he's already facing them. The Mass is oriented towards one thing, offering worship to God by the representation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. That's the orientation, the focus, the direction Mass should point toward. And that is the direction we should be pointed towards. We should be oriented to that, not facing inward in some kind of feel-good conversation between ourselves that excludes God and puts the emphasis on man, not God. Today, that doesn't seem to be the norm. Most Masses look more like man-centered community meals than sacrifices offered to God, by God, of God, for our salvation. That's due in no small part to not only a general Protestantization of the Catholic faith, but also major architectural changes, recovations as they are called, which have made celebration ad orientum harder and celebration towards the people easier. But we weren't made for ease and comfort. We were made for challenge, and make no mistake, changing this will be a challenge. It's more than merely flipping altars and mass around. It's a wholesale reorientation of the spirit of the liturgy as practiced in most parishes. We all have our work cut out for us, but that doesn't change the simple fact that this case is closed. I hope you fully understood and appreciated what Simon said. 
we and the priest must face the altar for Mass or face ad orientum. The priest is offering the Mass to God on our behalf, and you don't turn your back on the one who you're offering a gift to. So for those of you who are stuck in the spirit of Vatican II mentality, get over it. The priests who actually obey the church and face ad orientum, they'll be facing you at the most appropriate time, during the homily. Why is the priest supposed to face you during the homily when he faces the high altar during the rest of the Mass? Well, here's another abuse, and it's on the part of the laity during Mass. You see, when the priest reads the gospel, he's acting as Jesus, and his homily is Jesus speaking directly to you. You could certainly read along with the reader in the first and second reading, but in the gospel and homily, your eyes shouldn't leave the pulpit. Jesus is speaking directly to you. If Jesus was physically present at the pulpit speaking to you, would you distract yourself by reading from a book, fiddling with your phone, reading a bulletin, or any other distraction? No, you wouldn't, unless you don't really believe in him and the sacrifice he made for us. Doing things at Mass that are abusive and disrespectful to God, by both priest and the laity, are what's contributed to the loss of faith in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Don't make yourself a victim of Satan's by falling into these traps. You've heard my commercials about my bulletin insert program for parish priests to subscribe to so their parishioners can learn the Catholic faith. The only problem with this program is that the vast majority of priests either don't care about relieving their flock of their catechetical ignorance or they're too cowardly. Either way, these inserts do no good if they don't get into the hands of the people. Well, I've found a way to get each one into your hand. I've renamed these small articles Secrets of the Catholic Faith, and you can get one into your email inbox every week from Substack. It only costs $5 a month or $50 a year. Just click on the link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Hello again, Six Pack Warriors. We're back with the Sacred Heart Winds with Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. How are you today, Excellency? Good, Joe. How are you? Oh, it's been two months of Mondays. <laughs> That's how I am. Uh, listen, this is a, this first question, it's, uh, it's one that I think a lot of devout Catholics are uh, confused over, so I'm going to read the whole thing he's got here. Uh, Robert asks, we are both lifelong faithful and practicing Catholics and often pray the rosary together. Thank you, Robert. Uh, and we used to offer them for the intentions of the Holy Father. However, these past few years, we have stopped including his intentions in our rosary because, frankly, I don't believe all of his intentions are worth praying for. Many of his public statements and actions have greatly disappointed and shocked 
not only me and my wife, but many of my fellow faithful Catholic friends and family. We know that we are supposed to pray for the Holy Father's intentions, but our consciences tell us not to. Is this a sin? What are we to do? Well, um, actually, I have had that question from others just here locally. I'm sure it's a question that a lot of people have. The What I would suggest, I mean, the whole intention of praying for the intentions of the Holy Father is to pray for his ministry, his work as, as the chief shepherd, earthly shepherd of the church. Um, so rather than being concerned about which we should never pray for something that we don't believe is is the right thing. Um, so what I would suggest is simply to not specifically pray for the Holy Father's intentions, but to pray for the Holy Father to pray for Pope Francis that um, in these confusing times and with his advisors, that he is just guided uh, by the, the Holy Spirit and by the light of Christ. So that's what I would suggest. Rather than worrying about what the intentions are, just pray for the Holy Father. Amen, Bishop. You know, I I, uh, I pray for the Pope every single day. And you six-pack warriors, I use the uh, formulated prayer. Let us pray for our uh, sovereign pontiff, Francis. May, uh, now I can't even think of the formulated prayer. But I quit. That That's what happens when you're an idiot. The uh, uh, I stop praying the formulated prayer for Francis, and instead I say, let us pray for our sovereign pontiff Francis, may God give him the graces of conversion and repentance. Now, I'm not going to ask Bishop Strickland to comment on that. He can get in trouble. But <laughs> but uh, that's what I'm doing. You do what you want. But no, it's not a sin to uh, not pray for his intentions, but we are obligated to pray for him. Okay, thank you, Excellency. Uh, Mike asks, why can't the canceled priests move to an Orthodox diocese and work under a holy bishop? <laughs> well, that can happen, but it's fairly complicated. I mean, you have to, if there, if it's a diocesan priest, you have to work with the, the bishop where the priest is and the bishop where the priest may go. Um, Sometimes that can be worked out. Sometimes the the bishop is is very willing to allow a priest to relocate to another diocese, and another bishop is willing to welcome them. The same thing with religious orders. Um, uh, a priest that's a member of a religious community, with the 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 superior and the bishop that he's going to working together, that change can be made. Um, I'm aware of both of those instances where it has happened. Uh, you know, the, the, the reality, and it's not, there are certainly con controversies in the church today that are very disturbing, but th those kinds of transfers for various reasons, um, are not really that unusual. And canon law has a whole process for allowing for that kind of a priest can work in another diocese, 
who is still incarnated, the official connection to the home diocese where he's coming from. But, you know, there, there are kinds of situations where a priest may be working in a specific diocese, but still affiliated officially and incarnated in a home diocese that he hasn't been in for years. So none of that is really that unusual. It's just kind of as that question alludes to, with sadly the divisions among bishops and the different approaches. I mean, there there's certain things that some bishops are allowing that others aren't, and some bishops are not allowing that others are. So that unity in Christ is something we need to pray for, for every bishop. We we should be united enough to Christ that, you know, the same ministry, the same truth, the same one holy Catholic faith is being proclaimed. But, you know, we, being realistic, that's just not where we are worldwide, much less in the United States. Am I correct in assuming that a priest would have to initiate this? Uh, yes, or, you know, it, it could be a conversation with a bishop. I mean, you know, it, it, like I said, there can be, I mean, uh, it, there can be many different situations. The, the bishop may just see that a priest isn't flourishing with him. He may talk to a fellow bishop and say, would you let, Charlie, go to your diocese. I mean, so it could work that way. It could be the priest requesting and petitioning formally. You know, it could happen a lot of different ways, and, and it does. Uh, so there, there's a lot of movement, but canon law is very careful that every priest should be clearly affiliated with. I mean, we've got priests working in the Diocese of Tyler with agreements with their home bishop from around the world. I mean, and some of the priests have been here for many years, even since before I was bishop. Um, but that has to be agreed to on the bishop level. And, you know, if if you have bishops that are willing to work that out, there are a lot of possibilities. Well, that's great. I know for a fact that there are at least a few so-called canceled priests uh, listening to this show. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Excellency. Are you open to uh, hearing from such priests? I am, and I have. Um, a lot of times they're, they're in situations that it's sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place um, because it does take the cooperation of their, their bishop of incarnation, the one that they're officially affiliated with, and if for whatever reasons that isn't happening, then the priest, I mean, as a, another bishop, I have no authority to to do anything other than to welcome a priest that another bishop is releasing. Okay, so good. it does depend on the, the, the home bishop being in a place where he's able and willing to, to do that. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Because I, I know this is a concern of uh, several priests that I've talked to. They they would like to go elsewhere, but there are different things that hold them back. Particularly, they're afraid of how they're going to be viewed uh, by either bishop. So, uh, Jeffrey asks, 
Why does it seem as all is lost in the church? Heretics like Father James Martin receive an audience with the Pope, but Orthodox priests like Cardinal Zen are shunned and sent away. I know our hope is in Christ, but what is a good Catholic to think these days? Well, um, I think the the, uh, caller answered their own question. Our hope is in Christ, and we, we stay with his truth. We stay with, I mean, guarding the deposit of faith is is one of the promises that every bishop makes. Um, you know, to certainly there are there are confusing things happening in, in various levels of the church. But what I encourage people to do, all is not lost. Um, that will never happen. Uh, Christ promised that the church would continue, and uh, we just have to be faithful. Um, that certainly there are concerning questions and confusing questions. And, you know, I've spoken out about a lot of that because the truth is the truth. And when we veer from the truth, it does harm to individuals and sometimes to whole communities or nations. Uh, and so I would just encourage all of us, including this caller, to, uh, to really constantly go back to what we know to be the truth of Jesus Christ, to trust that it is his church. He is king of the universe, and God the Father has appointed him, given him all power and authority. So, and I think the final thing I would say is we always have to realize we have a very limited time-bound perspective. That doesn't mean we shouldn't live the truth as fully and as vigorously as we can, but we always have to put it into the big context of a timeless God who the the mystery is beyond us. And so to just keep keep from letting ourselves kind of go down too deep into the darkness and despair, to always remember God is the creator of all. We're not going to vote him out. I mean, that doesn't change no matter what humans decide. And so we we hold to the eternal truths that God has lovingly revealed to us and certainly make our own choices uh, according to those truths. Whatever choices others are making, uh, we pray for them and we pray for the world to see the light of Christ more more clearly. Thank you, Excellency. The I'd like to add to this, because Jeffrey is not the only one who has expressed this sentiment to me. I want to tell all of you six-pack warriors who think the way Jeffrey does, and it's a very valid thought. However, it's emotional. It's based on emotion and not your intellect. Your emotions are always going to betray you. They can never be trusted. Your intellect, on the other hand, which is given to you by God and is a reflection of him, that can be counted on if you know how to use your intellect. Jesus Christ established the Catholic Church. He's in control. It doesn't matter how many priests or bishops are going to be like uh, uh, Jesus' parable of the servants and the talents. That's irrelevant. What is relevant is that you follow 
Jesus Christ. That is intellect speaking and not emotion. Don't let the emotions get in the way. I'm sorry, Excellency. <laughs> no, I agree. <clears throat> well, and thank you. Boy, I like it when he agrees. I, not not too many good people agree with me. <laughs> Actually, that wraps it up for this week. Next week, we're going to have some kind of special questions. So thank you very much, Your Excellency, and I guess we'll see you next week. Thanks, Joe. God bless. Okay. have an apostolate you'd like other Catholics to learn about? Maybe you have an e-commerce business and you want to build sales while supporting a holy orthodox apostolate. Whatever you want to advertise, the Cantankerous Catholic is your portal to success. The Cantankerous Catholic is barely two years into broadcasting its weekly shows and we're already listened to in 77 countries, all 50 states, and 177 major cities throughout the U.S. and Canada. Our listener demographics are the most sought after for advertisers. The Cantankerous Catholic avatar is 53% men and 47% women, ages 18 to 34. The show's average growth rate through 2020 was 14% per week, and our listeners are Orthodox Catholics who reject heterodox Catholic positions and political correctness. Relative to other podcasts and online advertising, our rates are extremely cost-effective and inexpensive. You can advertise in each episode's show notes, in the recorded episode itself, our weekly newsletter that announces each new episode, all of these media together, or in any combination. So contact us today on the Sponsor Kit page on our website, cantankerouscatholic.com, or email Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, directly at joe at cantankerouscatholic.com to learn how you can begin driving traffic to whatever you want to promote while helping to support a worthy, orthodox, and hard-hitting apostolate. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. In last week's Catholic boot camp, you heard where my wife was having a conversation with a friend who's an anti-Catholic Protestant fundamentalist, and her conversation inspired the last boot camp. This boot camp is also inspired by our conversation with her. It seems my wife was trying to share the Catholic gospel message with this lady. When my wife mentioned to her that the one true church founded by Christ is the Catholic Church, the lady replied in her typically arrogant, self-assured, and dismissive manner, Catholic is just a word. Is Catholic just a word? Well, sure it is. It's an English word derived from the Greek word katholikos. It means universal. Of course, it also explicitly applies to the one true church Jesus founded. 
Until the year 1517, there were no other Christian religions besides the Catholic Church. Protestantism gave us the denominations of Christianity. For the first millennium and a half of Christianity, only the Catholic Church existed. The first non-Catholic religion to come along was Lutheran Church in A.D. 1517. The others came along as follows. The Swiss Reformed Church in 1523, Mennonites in 1525, the Anglican Communion in 1534, Calvinism, which now encompasses a lot of different denominations, in 1536, Presbyterianism in 1560, the Baptist churches in 1605, Methodism in 1739, Seventh-day Adventists in 1860, Pentecostalism in 1900, and so on. Actually, there are more than 40,000 denominations in America alone, but I just wanted to touch on a few I thought you might be most familiar with. I'll also show you that Jesus founded the Catholic Church and how it came to be known as Catholic. But first, there's something else I want to cover. Sadly, born of historical ignorance, this is just a minor thing, but it sticks in this convert's craw. I'm graded the wrong way every time I hear a Catholic refer to the Church as a denomination. We're not. The word denomination implies the division of one religion into separate groups, sects, or schools of thought. Since the Catholic Church was the first and only church for 1,500 years, and since all denominations ultimately trace their origin back to us, it's not a denomination. The Catholic Church is the one and only. Now let's talk about the foundation of the church. The clearest scriptural text to show that Jesus founded the Catholic Church is found in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What an incredibly pregnant passage. Peter, from the Greek Petros, meaning rock, is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Reinforcing that Peter is the rock Jesus was talking about is the fact that his name was never Peter until Jesus named him such, and his new name, Peter, supplanted the old, Simon. Jesus then promised that the church would stand until the end of time against all forces. Then he gave Peter the powers that had never been given to any man. Jesus promised Peter absolute authority over the faith and morals of the church, telling him that heaven would honor whatever decision he made. Anyone who knows anything about the hierarchy and practice of the Catholic Church can readily see that this is the church Christ founded. I could easily write a book on this topic. Indeed, books have been written on the topic. One book I'd recommend is Jesus, Peter, and the Keys by Scott Butler, Norman Dahlgren, and Reverend Mr. David Hess. It's published by Queenship Publishing. 
What makes this book so unique and convincing is that the authors quote dozens of Protestant Bible scholars and theologians who definitely assert that this passage is accurately interpreted by the Catholic Church, and that this passage does indeed demonstrate Jesus founding the Catholic Church on St. Peter. But when did the church Christ founded begin to be called Catholic? It's true that the Bible nowhere calls the church Catholic, and the word adequately describes the church because she's for all people of all times in all places. The earliest record of the church being referred to as Catholic was in the year A.D. 107, a mere 65 years after Jesus founded the church. Ignatius of Antioch, who, as an old man, was being led away to his martyrdom, in his letter to the Smyrnans wrote, Where the bishop is, there let the multitude of believers be. Even as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. St. Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. It's likely that St. Ignatius knew St. John, especially since the two saints died only seven years apart. The point of this is that since St. Ignatius uses the word Catholic as though it's nothing new, that it has already long been in use, then it's even likely that St. John used the word Catholic to describe the church. Get the book, Jesus, Peter, and the Keys. What you'll learn is nothing short of astounding. There's a link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com. If you own a website that generates revenue for you, directly or indirectly, according to a recent Supreme Court ruling, you must be compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. If you're not compliant, the government can fine you $50,000. Slip and fall lawyers are scouring the internet for non-compliant websites to sue on behalf of disabled clients for tens of thousands of dollars. One disabled man has filed over 800 lawsuits against non-compliant site owners. There were over 10,000 suits filed in 2020, but that number grew to 100,000 in 2022. Once they file suit against you, the government will definitely fine you, and there's no way to win against the fines or suit. You simply have to settle. Getting your website ADA compliant is very expensive. The minimum I've seen charged for this service is $4,000, but I've seen as much as $15,000. Well, I've learned how to make websites ADA compliant. If you want your website ADA compliant and avoid lawsuits and fines, as well as help finance this apostolate at the same time, for you six-pack warriors, I'll only charge $1,000 for full compliance. The $4,000 minimum charged by other ADA compliance consultants will only keep you from being fined. It takes full compliance to keep you from being sued, but that costs from eleven dollars to $15,000. Again, I'll do full compliance for any six-pack warrior for only $1,000 or $100 a month. Just click the link in my show notes on cantankerouscatholic.com and we'll get your site ADA compliant. Get compliant or risk lawsuits and fines. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. 
This week's Catholic quote is from St. Augustine. He said, Christ held himself in his hands when he gave his body to his disciples, saying, This is my body. No one partakes of this flesh before he has adored it. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Leonardo da Vinci was a great artist. His most famous painting was The Last Supper. The model he used for Jesus was a young man who sang in the choir of the Cathedral of Milan. His name was Pietro Bandolinelli. Da Vinci admired the beauty, innocence, and kindness of the young man's face, which came from his deeply religious and noble character. The picture of Jesus is a masterpiece. Years later, the artist was looking for a model to pose as Judas. One day, he met a man on the streets of Rome that he wanted as the model. The man was extremely ugly. Evil and greed were written plainly on his face. When they got to the studio and da Vinci began his work of painting this horrible face, he suddenly stepped back in surprise. His brush dropped from his hand. He recognized the lines of that face, and he asked, Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Yes, said the ugly man. You've painted me before. I'm Pietro Bandolinelli. A life of sin changed this young man from someone who was like Jesus to someone who was like Judas. Since mortal sin is a grievous offense against God, it must be punished. Mortal sin is its own punishment because it brings sadness, sorrow, and misery into your life. It makes sad changes in your appearance, but that's nothing compared to the hideous change it makes in your soul. Hate mortal sin because it makes you another Judas. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.